0: Hey guys, this is Sean. Stay tuned at the end of the show for some extended bonus information from one of our guests.
1: hard luck, Steve
2: Hard luck. Good afternoon and welcome to the Hard Luck Show. I'm your qualified, certified West Side host, Steve Lucky Nutriano. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned in to the greatest show on earth. It's the Hard Luck Show coming at you from the Pico Youth Center. It's sitting across from me, uh, my partner and my co-host, we are back at it with... Special, We got you, man. Yep. American
1: Indian, elegant barbarian, Southern Californian, bringing you another installment of a collaboration with California families to abolish solitary confinement. Granted by Unlock the Box. Produced by Danny Marilla and The Hard Luck Show. And today we will be talking about The Hunger Strike. And the agreement to end hostilities. And with us, of course, we have the audio samurai. Sean Lewis. Old Blue Eyes. We have the showrunner extraordinaire. His name is? Schwartz. Okay. And joining us as well is we have uh, Gentleman Jack, who, as fans recall, came in and did a show just about him and his story.
2: His journey. His journey.
1: And we also have what is affectionately known as Pickles, but what is the proper name?
3: Uh, My name is Angelica Camacho.
1: Angelica Angelica
2: Camacho. Camacho.
1: And um, what are your, uh, what do you do? What's your credentials? Let the people know.
3: Oh, I'm an assistant professor in criminal justice studies at San Francisco State University.
1: (sighs) That's amazing. Awesome. And you're also in the process of doing some writing. Is that not
3: correct? Yeah, I'm working on a book on the Pelican Bay, California Prisoner Hunger Strikes.
2: Right. Dope. That's, that's it.
3: And gentlemen, Jack, what is your
1: relationship to the stories and or uh, unpacking solitary
4: confinement? Uh, I did 40 years uh, in the prison and uh, more than 30 years plus in solitary confinement during, oh. the, during that era. Did you participate in the hunger strikes? Yes.
1: All right. So hunger strikes uh, and Helica. First of all, how did you get the name Pickles?
2: Yeah.
3: Oh, it's an old story. It's been with me since I was like in elementary school. I used to. (laughs) <laughs> how I remember it is that the boys used to bully the girls and the girls used to come tell me. And then so I would run around and beat up the boys that would harass girls. And then Damn. one of them uh, to make fun of me was like, Angelica Pickles, Angelica Pickles, because of Rugrats. Okay. Yeah. So he was trying to make fun of me. And then in middle school, people got lazy and they dropped Angelica and they just, just call me Pickles. And so I- it just stuck.
1: All right, you heard it here first. Yeah. All right, so pickles, which is a condiment to pickles. food you eat. Can you give us basic history on the hunger strikes? When did it really start, or when did they start, and what was the purpose of the hunger strikes, and who was engaged in it?
3: Yeah, so the Pelican Bay, California Prisoner Hunger Strikes, the first strike started in July 1st of 2011, okay. and it went for about 21 days. Right, So at the, at the front of the, of the hunger strike were five core demands, um, and I don't know if you, you want to go one yes, by one yep, or do yes. we want to just state them all five?
1: Well, why don't you um, state all five first and then we'll go back and revisit each one to unpack it. So, what were the five demands that they started with? So, you said July 1st, 2011, Eleven. Pelican mm-hmm. Bay, hunger strikes, 21 days, mm-hmm. five demands. What are they?
3: Yeah, so the first demand was to end group punishment and administrative abuse. The second was to abolish the debriefing policy and modify the active and inactive gain status criteria. The third one was to comply with the U.S. Commission on Safety and Abuse in America's Prisons, uh, that were um, the report was was published in 2006 and it was regarding the end to long-term solitary confinement. Number four was to provide adequate and nutritious food, and number five was to expand and provide constructive programming and privileges. For those that were held in the shoe indefinitely Mm
1: -hmm. so gentlemen Jack um, did you participate in the Pelican Bay 21 day hunger strike yes tell me about how you were told about it and how it was organized from your perspective
4: Mm -hmm. Um, and the organizing of the hunger strike had taken place uh, over uh, an extended period of time when the hunger strike was decided, I was actually in the uh, security housing unit in Tehachapi when I had been moved out of Pelican Bay and moved down to the uh, solitary confinement in Tehachapi. When I returned, I was placed in a unit and then I was told, hey, we're going to have a hunger strike on uh, uh, July 1st, you know, already down. So Yeah,
2: hey, let me let, oh, let me interrupt you for one second on that. When were you getting, when did you re rearrive at Pelican Bay and how far along, like, how much further along was it when you got this update? Uh,
4: it was probably less than 30 days. As soon as I pulled into the section, I was informed that uh, a hunger strike was uh, uh, on the horizon. Uh, there was just uh, determining who was going to participate. You have to remember, at that time, uh, a hunger strike was not unusual within the Dep- California Department of Corrections. They oh, been, it wasn't.
2: So this no. wasn't the first one that they were pulling together?
4: Well, the first one they were putting together, uh, that's something different. Who they are is something else. There had been hunger strikes in the California Department of Corrections for uh, you know decades. Decades. Okay. Right. So, but I've never participated in a hunger strike that... Uh, amounted to anything gotcha. uh, all of them every other one that I had participated in uh, up to the point where I entered into the institution and to that date uh, no hunger strike had ever been uh, uh, had any kind of a positive impact on those participating in that strike
2: so pulling us up here are you down for the hunger strike and you say yes but in your thought you had been you uh, dealt with it, other people. it was the strikes.
4: thought of the majority of the people in there uh, contemplating participating in that hunger strike that this was just going to be another futile attempt at trying to get uh, legitimate uh, Concerns addressed by the administration
1: So how does somebody in, in that was in your situation? How do you are you informed that there's going to be a hunger strike? I'm assuming no correctional officer wasn't like hey Jack You're gonna do a hunger yeah. strike
4: no, it was all, you know, through the through the grapevine, underground, mm-hmm. people talking, cross, crossing in the halls. Hey, did you hear? Hear mm-hmm. what? They're talking about a hunger strike. When? Mm-hmm. So, that, you know, you only got a couple seconds as you're passing in a hallway. Right. You're being told by the guards, don't be talking, don't be communicating, don't right. be looking. And you're saying what you're saying to them, and you're giving the message out in the two seconds it takes to pass p- path, pass by somebody else. So... Uh, the message was a, hey, there's going to be a hunger strike. Your only response is when, and then you move on, and then you wait for somebody else to come back and say, July first. <laughs> July first that was the date. So
1: okay. the day one of the hunger strike, let's say, right? Yeah. And so, what do you do? Like, how does how do you? Sh- I w- know. Were there
2: got- more instructions coming leading up to? that day did they like start like as it was getting closer everybody on the tiers getting clear everybody
4: everybody is preparing for the hunger strike you have to understand that a hunger strike is is very extremely difficult on an individual's body right I mean, it not only affects your internal organisms, it affects your mental capacity. Everything about you is uh, dramatically inf- affected as a result of depriving your system of what it needs in order to keep functioning, to keep you alive. Right.
1: Before we get into yeah. the longer-term effects, I just want to know the the manner in
4: which it starts. Well, I, I mean... You, you prepare for it. You start eating everything and everything you can. You, can. you right. build up as much body weight as you possibly can. You put it on 5, 10, 15 pounds, as much as you could put on before the date starts. So at least uh, when it starts, uh, your body has something initially to consume before it starts to have a traumatic effect on your internal organs and then when day
1: one starts you packed off you packed on 50 pounds right and then what do they do they slide the food into the well
2: they, hold on a second like they're packing on weight not everybody's able to pack on weight not everybody has store right not,
4: not everybody's able to pack on weight um One of the things, though, that is surprising about being in a a prison environment, especially in the solitary confinement unit, uh, when it was determined that everybody was going to participate in this uh, collectively, Mm -hmm. and I say everybody, I don't mean everybody in the shoe, I mean everybody that decided to go on this first Hunger strike. Mm-hmm. When they decided to do it collectively, then everybody that was around you that was also going to go on it contributed to those that were not in the position to help feed their bodies.
2: What does that mean? Did it was store distributed amongst people?
4: Store was- your meals. Uh, 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 so if wow. you're an individual that was able to go to the store as a as a result of having some financial uh, support from the outside world, uh, then. You passed on a lot of your meals and a lot of your store to those that did not have that ability. Are you because kidding you could me? That. Really? Yeah, it was a collective movement.
2: So it would be like somebody understand what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. He's
1: saying essentially somebody that financially had a little bit of advantage would go in and buy up a bunch of honey buns and distribute it to everybody, so everybody could get adequately
2: fat before the actual hunger strike. Is started. this no matter the color lines?
4: Uh, at, at this particular time, those issues had already been addressed, and uh, color, our race, our geographical location was no longer an issue. Really? Hold on, hold on, well, hold that's, on. That's
2: big, man. Hold on, he, what you're saying?
1: Hold on. So that would go to the end of hostilities portion of this discussion.
3: It yeah.
4: would. Okay. So we should. We go, should
3: back up a little bit. Yeah. Wow. Go, go ahead, and Helica, yeah. take us history that's of. Because when the first hunger strike took off, there was about 6,600 prisoners who refused food. And those that were at the front of the strike, the representatives, were, which you know are known as the shoe, shoe Short Corridor Collective, I don't think that they were expecting that many people to actually participate in the hunger strike. You know, from what I'm able to gather, they were at the beginning, in the, in the beginning of the strike, only really counted on a solid 50 prisoners. Um, so they didn't think that it would spread to the to the to this size right and so um, what what initially gave rise to this strike so um, as Jack was sharing is that there had already been efforts at hunger strikes right so part of what led them to want to come across races and organize and and unite across across races and across classifications to be able to um, to advance this movement was that they had already, you know, tried to go through the courts. They had already launched hunger strikes in 2001. They had already exhausted, you know, trying to file grievances. Um, And so this was kind of like a method of last resort, especially because many of them were growing older. Some of them were lifers. And in order to be able to get out of the shoe at that point, some of their limiter options were then, you know, you either debrief paroled or you died, right? right? So the hunger strike provided an opportunity to craft an alternative, right? For those that refused to collaborate with CDC and collaborate with their captors and abusers, this was a, a way for them to kind of create a change and create an outlet, a way out of the shoe um, by expo- coming together and exposing all of the torture and the corruption of CDC.
1: So, So, they, yeah. so on that, Right part of that is so the old story the common approach that we understand about prisons up to this point has been that Everything's divided by race, right? And you come in and you decide where you're going or they tell you where you're going blah 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 Who I want to know who amongst each Organization has to have a conversation to end Hostilities between various groups inside prison so they can do a collective activity that actually is gonna make a difference Who has to have that conversation?
3: Uh, Well, I don't think anyone could make anyone do anything. Um, You know, and everything that was part of this hunger strike was voluntary. Right. But um, at the front, as I I started explaining, was that at the front of the hunger strike was the Shoe Short Corridor Collective. Right. Mm -hmm. And the Shoe Short Corridor Collective came together. Right. So it was, you know, the. Uh, In a a multiracial alliance that represented new Africans, the black population, Mexicans of all walks of life, whites and others who had realized that they were uh, that they were being murdered. Right. And that they were dying at the hands of CDCR and the CCPOA. So they came together um, and they came together because they were uh, a group of men were uh, in the same pod together. I see. Yeah, they were in the same pod in this short corridor. Well, okay. so
4: first, real quick, what's a short corridor in the shoe? What is that?
3: Do you
4: want to explain a little bit about so uh, Pelican Bay State Prison is a is a large institution. They have general prison population where uh, prisoners are housed, and they have access to employment uh, to get mm-hmm. the yard and things uh, positive things of this nature. The security housing unit, on the other hand, is a facility that is based on uh, sensory uh, deprivation, uh, isolation, uh, and it is in within this. Uh, confined that the shoe uh, collective was uh, created and what happened is Pelican Bay in their attempt to further isolate and segregate uh, individuals they came up with the idea that anybody that they believed had some type of influence or was uh, uh, capable of providing some positive direction like uh, uh, jailhouse lawyers Uh, Litigators, uh, people that had been in the institutions and jails for a long time, anybody that had a positive reputation, they created a section within the security housing unit and they moved everybody to this corridor, the short corridor. It was four blocks uh, out of the 12, out of the 24 blocks, they cut off four. And they moved everybody that they could classify in this manner to those four sections. And that became the short corridor because the corridor itself was uh, architecturally shorter than the other corridors where everybody was in. So let me understand this real quick, real quick. Mm-hmm. So
1: <clears throat> basically, they took all of the leadership. Or people who were able to at least do some kind of legal advocacy or whatever it is, and you're telling me that the CDC's
4: great idea was to put those guys together? Right. Well, they you have to remember that at the time they did this, there was not a, um, a determination uh, or resolve amongst the population to uh, coexist together. Right. Okay? Right. So they put, uh, let's say... Uh, Two blacks in one cell, two northern Mexicans in one cell, two southern Mexicans in one cell, two whites in one cell, hoping that the racial divide and the geographical locations would continue to work and these individuals would exist by themselves, alone, in themselves, in their cells, without reaching out. And they would have more control so So, unwittingly the cdc actually sowed the seeds of their own demise they
2: absolutely did so i want to back up a second just so that people are understanding um when jack when when pickles are referring to pelican bay pelican bay is a fully functioning prison okay pelican bay has a main general population yard Okay, or yards in the prison where prisoners can live amongst each other, get visits, whether they be regular visits, conjugal visits, they can have jobs, they can have education, they can have full canteen, they can, okay, and and interact, and it works as a regular kind of low-level prison with all the things you might see on TV and hear about. The majority of the prison is divided, is built in buildings that were designed for uh, solitary confinement and to segregate everybody that were known to be a threat to the institution gang members, violent offenders, okay, all these people. Within that, there's even a smaller section where people of in real influence people that were running lawsuits like he said ins- people that were really giving the CDC a run for their money and a headache. They put them in what they call a short quarter and the corridor was actually short and that's where they housed them. They thought that by keeping them right. segregated away that all the segregation that even the population of the prisons had. Implemented themselves would keep these men separate with each other. but it's interesting what you're saying because what the CDC did
1: though What by trying to isolate the leadership by the old racial classifications? They actually gave that the, them the, the space, the, the space, space and the opportunity to make a collective that would end the hostilities, right?
3: Yeah, so yeah, so to kind of reiterate Pelican Bay is a you know a Pelican Bay State Prison has a general population. It has the shoe unit, right? The shoe unit is what we're talking about. That's mm-hmm. where um, the hunger strike was organized. But within the unit, shoe unit, there's a the short corridor, right? So within the short corridor, within this pod, in um, one of these pods that are uh, D1 through D4 is what the short corridor is, um, you have Sitawa, right? You have um, Antonio um, Guillen. Um, you have, uh, give me a second.
4: Arturo Castellanos.
3: Arturo Castellanos, right? And you have Todd Ashker and you have Donnie Troxwell, right? And so they're all in this pod and they're all having conversations with one another. And um, Todd Ashker and Donnie Troxwell are, like, known to be very powerful and very knowledgeable jailhouse lawyers. Right. Right. And so amongst them, right, they're reading literature that's inspiring them and they're having dialogues and conversations about their conditions of confinement. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of these, you know... Like they have a history of litigation with C D C R, right? And and right. the limits of the law and how um that hasn't really uh, gotten them the the you know, the reforms that they that they've liked to see, right? So right within those conversations is where the idea of the hunger strike emerges Mm -hmm. right from the literature that they're reading from the conversations that they're reading and from their own personal experiences of having exhausted previous strategies avenues um, um, previous, previous avenues right and so they're the ones that first start to kind of talk about this and it's uh, the idea of the hunger strike goes back and forth for about a whole year, right? So it's all this dialogue and conversation, and and some of them were very pessimistic about the idea of the hunger strike because they had already previously tried that, right? And and um, some of them were like, these these fools would like celebrate if we die. They're gonna let us starve to death. Like they don't care.
1: Yeah, they'll help
2: right. us starve to death. Right. Yeah. Okay.
1: So before we get to the difference, now I want to return back. Here we are with gentleman Jack. We're sitting there. It's day one of the hunger strike. How do you, like, how how does it actually happen? So do they slide a tray of food and you kick it back at them or you just don't eat
2: And by the way, gentlemen, Jack, how much did you yourself eat in preparation for this? Were you able to, were you able to bulk on yourself? Right. Did you put some weight on and and tell us about day one? Were you eating
4: cans of deviled ham or what were you doing? A lot of peanut butter. (laughs) A
2: lot of peanut butter. (laughs) (laughs) Because it had
4: protein. Right. Uh But yeah, I mean, uh, so when we... When we got ready for the hunger strike, uh, it was the day. It came around. Everybody knew July 1st, uh, 2011, was going to be the first day. Yeah. And uh, everybody got up. And everybody still felt good, those that were participating. Those that weren't, of course... You know, they ridicule the people on the tier. I don't know why you're not eating. You know, it's not going to amount to nothing. You know, normal banter and communication amongst men living in concrete boxes. Right. What's but, the ratio, but,
2: though? Well, what on. is the... I want to know what on. the ratio is yeah. like. Yeah. Well, it, yeah. It,
4: de- it depend where, you where are you're at, at. What, what pod you're in, who you're around. So how okay. is the food oh, delivered, man. though, when you're in the in the cell? How do they deliver so the food the, to you? The food was delivered in the same manner. A uh, uh, Guard would stack trays up on a rolling cart, roll that cart into the pod, and then the guard would walk up to a cell with a tray in his hand and say, do you want to eat? If you do, step back. They would unlock a tray slot that was cut into the steel door of your cell, and they would slide the tray through that steel-cut door and then close it and lock it back up, and you were left inside the cell with the tray with the food that you were going to be consumed. They were picked up in the same manner. Mm -hmm. If you refused meals as a result of the hunger strike, when the guard came to your cell, you just told him, I don't want it. Pass me up. That started happening quite a bit. The guards were going to cells, and people were saying, pass me up. And they had to wheel those carts back out the pods with trays stacked on them. And to that to them, it was foreign because when you're living in a concrete box and you're offered food, you take it. Right. Right. And this was not the situation on this, this day.
0: This particular okay, day. Okay, so
4: so so right there, right, <clears throat> I got to imagine, first day, everybody's
1: strong, right? And, and the guards might have been a little bit disoriented, but probably on some level they're like, yeah, this is just day one.
4: Yeah, they they knew. They absolutely knew. And those that weren't participating in the hunger strike absolutely knew that it wasn't going to last. And if it did last any amount of time, it wasn't going to uh, produce any positive outcome.
1: Right. So it's like, oh, if you want to starve, that's on you. I'm going to, you know, I'll
4: tell you what, I'm eating a big barbecue sandwich right absolutely. now. Absolutely. tasty. Well, and, and to. Uh, Emphasize the point that you just stated. On July 4th, oh. the 4th of July. Holy shit. They rolled in carts into the pods. Oh, I heard about it. Go. And they had double cheeseburgers, hot dogs, oh. watermelon, chocolate milk. I want to eat that They now. had all this food, and they just yelled over the tear, whoever wants to eat, you can eat as much as you want. Let us know, and we'll bring you the food. As many trays as you want. Oh. Okay, stop. Hold on, hold on.
1: So by then it's been about four days. Four days. How hungry is Gentleman Jack after four days?
4: Well, you're hungry. But you don't start to feel that hunger uh, then. Uh, You feel the hunger the end of the first day and the beginning of the second day. Soon your body adapts to it and you don't feel the hunger. And it's not until about the sixth or seventh day that you start to feel dizzy. If you move quickly, if you get up, if you're moving around, you start to feel lethargic. Uh, You're unable to concentrate uh, and uh, hold uh, uh, prolonged conversations with somebody because the effects of uh, not feeding your body are starting to have uh, their toll on your internal organs, including your, your mental capacity and helica Camacho. Yes at this point in time, right?
1: How's the CDC reacting? How how is What is the strategy? Of The CDC when they're encountering the first part of the hunger strike, are they shocked by how many people are participating?
3: I think so because I I, I think that for the most part they didn't take them very seriously They didn't think that they'd be able to organize it at this level or that the message of the hunger strike would spread so widely um, And I think also that they counted on the fact that you know society was very supportive of tough-on-crime legislation and that they really like as a society we heavily dehumanize people who are criminalized and people who are behind bars, so they didn't really think that the public would support them, especially because um, of the reputation of Pelican Bay and the people that are within Pelican Bay they're always considered to be the worst of the worst so I don't I think that they really underestimated the capacity of their message to get out and to touch people and to and for other prisoners to stand in solidarity with them and to identify with uh, the message of that movement
1: what how did How did it get bigger how did the knowledge of the movement get bigger to the outside world because you're right like on some level you go like well So so some prisoners are you know who are already in trouble, right? What do we care if they're not eating or not? How did it get to a place where the general public started or the media started to take notice
3: of this? Well, the families were a really huge component of it because the families came out in, in huge numbers and really showed that love and support for for, for folks that were inside. And, and they were able to kind of intervene in the in the narrative that CDC had for so long of painting these men as the worst of the worst. And, you know, that that's one of the things that I would say was actually beautiful, the hunger strike. I think that there, there's a lot of horror. There's a lot of pain. And it was a nonviolent protest that actually wasn't nonviolent. It's just that. The folks inside decided to harm themselves, their bodies, rather than reacting outwardly, right? But, um, you know, that that hunger strike caused a lot of harm to them. But anyways, so I don't get off track. Um, part of... <laughs> part of um, what becomes so powerful I think of the hunger strike is that families come out, right? And you gotta realize this is 2011, this is pre-Trayvon Martin, right? right. So like right now we're in a right. whole different era Absolutely. of like yeah. oh, around no. incarceration right. and defund the police like this is 2011 right. right? Like the CDC system is like warehousing people in gyms because they don't fit within, you know, like that. the the 33 prisons that they already have, right? right. Uh, ad segregation is at like 9,000 So the families coming out was a really big deal because I think for so many years families like weren't even able to share that they had a loved one in prison and much less share that they had somebody in Pelican Bay shoe because of the stigma of incarceration. Right. Right. So like families coming out in huge numbers and coming out to parks like Black and Brown families uniting out in the street and just like getting to stand out there with a sign, you know, to like be in support for that. That that was really powerful and I think that. That also, like, picked up a lot of, um, you know, picked up the attention of Democracy Now!, Al Jazeera, uh, Univision, right? So you started getting um, a lot of media attention, and that brought even more people out because they were just like, wow, like, I, you know, I've been having, you know... I've been dealing with CDC for all of these years and the bureaucracy of of CDC for so many years and been never stood up or said anything about, you know, their own personal experiences with CDC out of retaliation. And this movement came out and families were out and then they felt like they could come out and like start sharing their own experiences with like incarceration and policing. And so I think that that provided a platform and uh, got a lot of media attention that then led to the wide support uh, for the hunger strike, right? Because once it started coming out on television, then other folks in different prisons were able to kind of uh, get updates on on what was happening with the strikes as well, too.
1: Gentlemen, Jack, when guys are refusing refusing the food trays, what about liquids? Are you drinking out of
4: the tap? How do you get How do you get your drink? We're drinking water. Uh, we knew that. Uh, we could survive uh, without food right. because your body had a store of food that it can uh, take from, sugars, proteins, and things like that. But the body can't survive without liquid. Right. Three days without liquid and, and you're going to— You're toast. You're through. Yeah. So, yes, we were drinking uh, waters, uh, but that's about it. We're drinking waters uh, to sustain— uh, your existence and to assist in killing the emptiness within your stomach.
1: At any time, are you thinking about Gandhi and his hunger strikes during this? Uh,
4: no, I wasn't, but we did think about, uh, uh, the, the story that was going around and that was the Bobby Sands, uh, men that had, uh, went on a hunger strike, uh, protesting i think it was england's occupation of ireland Mm -hmm. and and all of them died they all died from the hunger strike so we were thinking of them yeah and that's what sustained you kept you going how many times did you almost break did you almost break i mean you 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 almost break every time you do something and it's Uh. just a matter of saying um i'm gonna hold on (sighs)
1: At what Mm -hmm. point during, so this went on 21 days, weekend you're like the hunger's finally really hitting you. You're getting lightheaded, you can't move around too much. At what, was there different points where you felt the solidarity in the air and you knew you were gonna win?
4: Uh, uh, Participating in the hunger strike did not uh, have a completion date. Right. Okay. So, I mean, you didn't know. And, and a lot of people that were participating in the hunger strike uh, weren't told on this day, stop. That wasn't the issue. The, the issue at the hunger strike's commencement was going all the way. I mean, if that means you drop dead as a result of this, then your sacrifice is for the greater good. And uh so there wasn't no you know, wait 21 days and then start eating. It just so happened that at, at the end of that period of time when the word passed around, it's over, you ate uh, and and it, that word was passed around as a result of being told that the 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 five core demands were going to be addressed.
2: so So then I have a question for you. Were you ready to die behind this uh, by this?
4: Well. I don't know. I mean, how do you know you're ready to die? I mean, I was, I was prepared to give what I could give, and contribute what I can contribute. But you know, who do you, uh, you know, how do you know? How do you know what you're prepared to give until you can't give it no more? Man, that's a
2: real answer. I would agree with you. I would, I would imagine the guys that I know that are in places like that when they say they're going to do something, it's usually going to happen. Hey, and when all that- you get guys that have been blocked up in a hole for that long, say they're going to do something, I pre- I believe that there was a lot of those men that would have died just like the people you were reading about. Yeah, but- they just it just stopped them. I, I I don't think those guys when they made the decision. I think they made the decision on a much deeper level, not like you're saying. I think they made it with the intention that we may die doing but, this. But I take gentleman Jack's point too,
1: which is like. I mean, yeah, I was committed, but how do you know? We 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 got to twenty-one, and and the five demands were being addressed. But what do you? That's a real answer. How do you know until you're confronting with that final final, at the twentieth day. I mean, was your pants, like, falling down to your ankles? I mean, what what was your physical situation
4: on the 20th day? We didn't wear pants in the hole. <laughs> Only boxers. Were the boxers falling yep. down your boxers ankles? And socks. <laughs> things were getting loose. You know what I mean? But, um, <laughs> things were getting loose. <laughs> things were getting real loose. <laughs> but you have to remember, uh, those are not things that people thought about. Right. I mean, you're thinking more about... Uh, s- simply surviving that particular day. So you weren't looking down and going like, God damn, I got abs. I got a six-pack right now. You weren't <laughs> doing any of that. And, and believe it or not, there were still people exercising. Oh, yeah. No I shit. I would imagine. Yeah. So. What about you? I mean, were you just, like, if you stood
1: up on the 20th day too fast? Would you get lightheaded? Absolutely.
4: Just- you get dizzy. Y'all. You know, you stagger around and you sit your ass back down.
2: God damn. Jack, At at, at what point in time... During this, do you start to, like, how does the news, how do you start to understand that you guys have gained, like, like this is really something that's gone way bigger than what
4: you guys expected? Nobody thought that many people were going to go. Right. So when you hear the number, 6,600 people are on a hunger strike, right. you sit back and you say, man, I'm one of them. Right. I'm one of those people. And you feel proud for being able to say, I'm one of those people, right? I mean, you contributed uh, to something that, uh, was bigger than you and you did not do it on your own, uh, but you contributed to the whole and that makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. Part of something, Mm -hmm. part of something,
3: right?
1: So pickles, these five demands, right? One of them is, is programming and education, right?
3: That would be uh, part of like the the fifth demand,
1: which was programming and education Why were people hunger striking for that? What was the need for that?
3: I think like well, I mean if you look at the hunger strike and you really analyze the movement it's a critique of like the the incarceration right and the conditions of confinement and incarceration and And whether incarceration really does create safety and security, right? Because safety and security becomes a marker for why they justify that type of confinement, right? And so part of asking for productive programming and access to education is because they wanted the opportunity to be able to work on themselves, right? And they had a whole different philosophy on how do you actually prevent violence? How do you actually reduce violence? How do you actually stop crime? right? And so looking deeply at it, it is part of that critique, um, and ultimately, I mean, uh, because there's so many layers to this. Right. So for some of the folks that decided to go on the hunger strike, like a lot of them were lifers. Right. And um, they were being held in the shoe indefinitely, which means that there's no really a, and there's not really a date for you to be able to get out of the shoe. Right. So some of them had spent like 10 20 years uh in in the shoe they had been there since 1989 right so for them um especially those who were lifers and who were in the shoe indefinitely there there was no probability of them ever being considered for parole right and uh, much less leaving the shoe right so it's like how do you uh how do you then um live for the rest of your life right so like if you're going to die in the shoe right like how 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 do you um, How do you see yourself living in these types of conditions for the rest of your life?
1: Let's address this real quick because I'm assuming that there's some Trump supporters out there That are gonna say something to the effect of their critique of what you just said would be something to the effect of like Who cares how those people live? I mean, they're in there for a reason, right? They broke the law So why do should I care about the quality of their life while they're in there? What's the counter argument to that?
3: Uh, well, if you ask me, I think that I have a different perspective because I'm a prison abolitionist, right? But um, in terms of the hunger strike, they were not prison abolitionists, right? So, like, um, I remember listening to... Um to an interview by Alfred Sandoval. And he said something along the lines of like, they assume that, you know, that because we're prisoners and we're criminalized, we're considered criminals, that they could dehumanize us and that they can, you know, they don't understand that us being, you know, serving a sentence is our punishment, right? And that it doesn't give them the, you know, the right to degrade us, right? So partially Mm. this movement was, you know, trying to talk about how everyone has a right to live a dignified life, right? So their punishment is to be behind, uh, to be, to be withheld if in prison, right? They're given a sentence. And that doesn't mean that you get to degrade them just because CDC has placed a label upon them and, and, you know, alleged that they're prison gang members, right? So that's part of the the shoe. The Part of being in the shoe is the whole... And the, the five core demands is contesting the way that they're validated to be placed in the shoe. And the thing is that people were held in the shoe indefinitely because they were assumed to be prison gang members. Right. They're there for a label, not for what they've done. Right. So they're there for who they're assumed to be, not for something that they have committed. Right. And then part of what the hunger strike was talking about in the first demand is, you know, you need to hold people individually accountable for what they do, not as a group. Right. Mm-hmm. So what did that person do? and hold them individually accountable for what they did. But you can't hold somebody, and it's not, you know, it's not just, or for them, they make arguments for constitutional law as well, too. It's not just to hold somebody in 1989 just because you say that they're part of the Mexican mafia or they're part of the black guerrilla family when they don't have any rules violations for decades, right? And, um, And not only that, but you're criminalizing them for being part of a gang prior to it, you know, like, that it wasn't, A crime to be part of a game when some of these people joined a game, right? So
1: gentlemen Jack same same question to you like the Joe Joe of the world are gonna say who cares what goes on? I
4: I mean, that's easy to to respond to I mean you would ask them what have you done wrong? And should you be punished for the rest of your life as a result of that wrong Mm -hmm. or should I provide you an opportunity? uh, To correct that wrong? Uh, that's, that's the simplest form yeah, that you can do it. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, there's a saying that we are are more than the worst thing we've ever done. Mm-hmm. But in this particular case, I mean, uh, it, Pickles is absolutely right. Uh, over 89% of the people that were in, in solitary confinement indefinitely had not violated any rule or regulation of the California Department of Corrections aside from being presumed associate, identified right. as being an associate or a gang member by an undisclosed confidential source right so we've gone on another, another show criminal.
1: we've gone on another show and talked about the validation process and how how broken that was and how easy it was to manufacture evidence and not have it tested right another piece of this is also the incentive to quote unquote debrief So I'm imagining as I'm listening to you guys talk that there's somebody who got put into a situation And they don't know why they're put in there other than some confidential informant said something But they can't test it and they're told you can debrief Now I can imagine there might be some individuals after enough torment in that scenario might debrief falsely
4: in order to get out I mean, it's it's similar to what they discovered in the black prison's Uh, during the uh, enhanced interrogation techniques. Right. When you push a person beyond uh, their capability, they will say and do whatever they have to say or do in order to extricate themselves from that position. It was not unusual for someone to make a statement uh, against somebody else for their own personal gains. Right. Uh, But uh, aside from that, Uh, The fact that someone would have to be subjected to that, Jim, simply because the Department of Corrections was exercising a technique uh, for personal benefits that tortured other human beings in and of itself is horrific to think about. Uh, And and that was the case here. The, The security housing unit was designed with sensory deprivation of an individual. And when that in and of itself didn't have a large enough impact on the population that was housed there, Mm. then other techniques were developed Mm. in order to enhance that extraction of information process. Mm. And that's what we were living with in the security housing unit.
1: So. When. 21 days goes by and you get the information that the five demands are going to be addressed I'm not even sure that the five demands have been fully satisfied, but at least they're going to address it uh-huh. and they say it's time to eat And that tray comes through to you when you don't eat for 21 days I don't know that you can just go right ahead. and eat. How did you, you get back into eating
4: you have to eat slowly? Uh, first of all, you don't want to gobble everything down on the tray. You, you just pick up a couple portions and you eat it. Even the Department of Corrections knew that. So when they, when the hunger strike ended, they came through and said, hey, don't eat. Let it, We're going to feed you just this. There's a piece of bread and a piece of bologna. Mm-hmm. You know, eat that today. Tomorrow we'll give you two pieces of bread and two pieces of bologna. They understand that the human system.
2: They already started acting
4: different. Yeah
2: right yeah right it wasn't like that when you started x amount of days prior oh no oh guys we're gonna look out no it's
4: yeah it's because now it becomes uh, now six thousand six hundred people had been on hunger strike and the department of corrections is no longer uh clothed in their shroud of secrecy right it
2: was all over the news all over the world and this
4: was just the beginning
1: when you get that first piece of bread and bologna, you eat it. Can you feel it affect your system
4: as soon as you swallow it? Absolutely, you could taste everything about yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, you, you can imagine the wheat that was grinded to make that piece oh, of bread. Yeah. You know what I mean, <laughs> you can you understand that that piece of bologna is constructed out of many things, but it, nonetheless, it, it satisfied the need to. Quench your hunger. Right. So when
1: 21, 21 days, they come down and just... So then what happens, And Angelica Camacho? What happens when <laughs> when they address it? What,
2: is, what does CDC do and what do they agree to? And and, and how do they know that? Just because they say, oh, okay. How did everybody know to stop eating? Like, just because they...
3: Uh, so, so the reason that the hunger strike got called off was because CDC... Um, went talked like decided to to sit with the the representatives of the hunger strike right so we talked about how there was the sh- shoe short corridor collective mm-hmm. and there's a representative body that is at the front of the strike and cdc decided to sit down and have a conversation with them and they said that they would look at demand number two which was the debriefing policy mm-hmm. right and that is like at the heart of the hunger strike right ending the debriefing policy in the way that they're validated um and then also they had acquired a court order to be able to force feed Uh, those that remained on the strike. So the representatives decided that, um, okay, you know, like they wanted to thank folks that had actually stood in solidarity, but they didn't want anyone to actually get further harmed, Mm -hmm. right, and be force fed. So, you know, they're like, okay, this is not about harming folks, especially those that decided to stand in solidarity. So we're going to go ahead and go with what CDC said, that they would look at the debriefing policy. We'll give them three weeks to look over their policies um, and come up with some changes. So um, what ended up happening was that in, the, in, in them suspending the strike, they, uh CDC started proposing the revision of the, of the validation process, but then they expanded it to security threat groups. Right. So they actually expanded validation to be able to incorporate street gangs and to be able to validate people now when they're on the outside. So you don't have to be inside of prison and you don't have to be attached to a prison. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So it got worse. It got worse. They actually expanded the the amount of people that could end up being validated.
2: Like, like, oh, we're going to take a look at it. And when they took a look at it. Well, CDC
3: always does that. They say we're going to revise their policies and then they change them to their benefit. Yeah,
1: uh, Listen, we're going to rewrite this. You're absolutely right. We're going to rewrite this. We're going back, and we're going to rewrite it to make it worse. To make yeah, it worse TV. for you. So then, so what? then, what happens?
3: Uh, and then they start giving people 602s for participating in, um, in the hunger strike.
1: 115. Sorry. 115. Sorry. And then what happens 115?
3: once once you
4: realize CDC is full of shit? Then what happens? Well, um, CDC also believed that if they made this um, gesture and the strike end then the old, uh, uh, the old language would re- reappear that uh, we did a hunger strike and it amounted to nothing right. and they would lose support. Right. Okay? And they were counting on that. They were counting on the fact that, hey, you got nothing, you didn't eat, and you got nothing from us. You want to do it again? Go ahead.
3: Yeah, so the thing that happened, though... Wait, I-
1: wait, hold on. I, I want to drill down. I want to really sit on that concept right now because I think it has implications that go beyond just prisons and that is when you, when when the powers that be want to want to make sure that the people don't collectivize mm. and make sure that the people don't ask for anything the most important thing to do is to crush hope mm if everyone thinks there's no point, my vote doesn't count. I, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what store I go to. I'm going to have to wind up buying the same old shit. Might as well go to one. All that shit, including prison, all that. If you can get people to swallow that, you will, they will never be able to collectivize
4: and ask for more. That's true. And the thing that, has, that was developing, that had developed in the security housing unit, the shoe was the understanding amongst the men that we were dying. We were going to die in a windowless concrete box and no one was going to be around and they'll find us on our floor dead one day. And when you reach that realization, you understand, hey, if I'm going to die, I'm not going to let you kill me. I'm going to go the way I want to go. Yeah. And that contributed to the determination that a hunger strike is the most feasible way because now you're choosing to die on your feet in your manner as opposed to just sitting in on that cell and taking it and falling over one day because you can no longer live.
1: Man, I think what you just said is so important because right now I'm reading the Haga Kure, which is one of the books of the old samurai wisdom. And part of what made a samurai a samurai, like a real one, is the willingness to face death and not and not be scared
4: of it like on your terms on your terms, and we knew that all it 's like Pickle said there was three ways out: you debrief, you parole, or you die, and for those of us doing life, we weren 't going to parole right, and for those that had a fire in our bellies uh, to withstand um, That which was designed to break us, we weren't going to debrief. Right. Uh, So the only other option was die. He said with a a smile. And we decided you you as an individual, but you could look at it now as a collective, was decided to, okay, then I'll die. But I won't let you kill me.
2: That's what I was getting at, yeah. Right right
1: so the cdc pulls their dirty move and then was there another hunger
3: strike yeah so what they weren't counting with was the families right so like they thought that people you know that they they were going to call off the first hunger strike and it was going to die out and then they were not going to get support so the families were the ones that are like oh hell no Mm -hmm. like we're going to stick to this and we're going to you know we're going to continue to make noise about this because that's you know that's our loved ones that are back there yeah, in the shoe. So what happened is in August, the Public Safety Committee, which is the one that's above CDC. Right. So there that's who CDC has to kind of report to uh, held the hearing. And at that hearing, uh, families, you know, got their money together and donations of people that they knew. And they took van pools to Sacramento and they showed up at that hearing. Right. And so then the Public Safety Committee was just like, what the hell is going on here, CDC? Because for so many years they trusted CDC. They had no oversight over CDC. And, you know, politicians ran on this tough on crime, uh, these tough on crime narratives. They didn't want to be seen as soft on crime because they thought that they wouldn't get elected. Right. So they and CDC has and the prison guards union has so many power. So so much power in Sacramento and lobbying. Right. So so yeah so what happens is the public safety committee starts to put their eyes on CDC um, and starts asking questions and starts questioning the validation process um,
1: right because, because now we're seeing this huge movement and high visibility of this issue and the family showing up and that ain't supposed to happen like if CDC is handling business the proper way it's supposed to be all quiet on the western front
4: but you have family members uh Dolores Carnales was an organizer uh uh, that contributed to this and they had testimonies in front of these uh, assembly people in the Capitol and they had mothers and daughters and sons and fathers reading stories about how their children, those of us in the in the in the shoe were. We're losing our minds, becoming insane as a result of the sensory deprivation or deteriorating as a result of being stuck in a concrete cell where coldness uh, enclosed you as a result of the concrete absorbing that, that element and intensified when, it, when you're sitting in the middle and all of it's coming in. So people are starting to suffer uh, the deterioration of their physical being as well. All these things uh, started to happen and the family members were sitting in front of legislators and they were reading these stories that were just so horrific that they could not wrap their minds around the fact that the people they had entrusted to uh, address uh, the incarcerated population were inflicting this torturous nature upon uh, citizens of the United States and Californians in general.
1: Right. Fellow human beings.
4: Fellow human beings. Man. 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 So once that
1: happens, right, and the, the committee on, what was it called?
3: The Public Safety Committee.
1: Public Safety Committee. Once they get a smack in the face, now they're looking at CDC. Then what happens?
3: Uh, so, so in the meantime, CDC is responding, you know, retaliating one fifteen with the 115s and then proposing the security threat group as opposed to the traditional way of validating. And so those that were the representatives of the short corridor collective, are like, this is bullshit, right? So, right. Um, so they go back and they decide to launch a second hunger strike. Um, and then that second hunger strike, I believe it's September 26th was when it starts. September 26th is the second hunger strike and it goes through October. Um,
1: How many days was the second one?
3: Uh, the second one was uh, up to October 13th. So I believe it was about 18 days.
4: Right. What was so historic about this And that's before we talk about anything in the future, is the impact it had on the Department of Corrections when on that day they were notified that 12,000 plus prisoners were now participating in a hunger strike statewide and that news clips were now coming in from other countries that were stating we support. Silicon Bay state prison hunger strikers and that the national news was capturing these stories and now broadcasting them on channel 11 and channel five and Fox TV and Mm -hmm. that we had become, um, we were exposing, uh, the department of corrections, billion dollar, Uh, scientific adventure to determine what an individual could withstand
1: man so it it doubled in participation doubled and so that was basically
4: a real slap in the face of the cdc they thought that it was going to diminish and they thought that they were going to be able to push it away and that they weren't going to have to address nothing and that all that was going to be the result Is that they were going to be able to increase their grasp upon those that were confined in the shoe man and so where did that leave them so then what did they what did CDC do then did
1: they come to the table in earnestness at that point
3: supposedly yeah so and then the Public Safety um, Committee said that they would intervene and start proposing legislation Right. So folks like Lonnie Hancock. um, And at that point, uh, Senator Tom Amiano was the chair who's Mm -hmm. coming from San Francisco. Um, So they they said that they would um, they would intervene by through legislation. So they did have a set of bills that they ended up proposing, but they ended up being cut and not signed by the governor in the end. Right? Who was the governor that didn't sign those bills? Brown. Jerry Brown, the supposed socialist
1: moonbeam guy, didn't follow through and sign those bills to help Californian
4: guys that were, and gals that were uh, institutionalized. But you have to remember, um, at that point, we weren't really de- uh, putting our eggs in one basket. We had the families that were providing us uh, strength. Uh, and we had the litigation that was moving through the courts and it was now being looked at. And we had the men uh, determined uh, to face um, the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, and so you had that three-pronged axis working in unison in order to seek to accomplish the five core demands. And you have to, when you look at these five core demands... And you read them, you'll know that none of them are selfish and none of them are particular to a group and none of them are self-serving. All of them address a rehabilitative model to assist those upon release to re-enter into the community with a better understanding of how to live a better life.
0: That's super powerful.
4: So where does now? Now they
1: put a cap five year on solitary confinement. That still seems too long. So where are
4: we today with abolishing? Well, I I think before we could get to that point, we have to talk that. uh, at, At the result, as a result of the second hunger strike, there was concessions made. Right. The Department of Corrections. Made concessions to the hunger strikers and all of those that were in solitary confinement. And they gave us.
3: Um, you, yeah. you had beanies by that time. You got beanies, you got a wall calendar, you got a photograph with, uh, if you, have, you were one year free of Your dis- family. from disciplinary write ups, um, you got a handball and a pull up bar.
4: Yeah. And, so we were allowed to act like a pong game right. on the yard. Right. Where we could throw a ball against the wall and watch it bang off all five walls until it stopped rolling and you could pick it up and do it again. Right. And then you could go inside and look at the calendar to determine what you were going to do tomorrow on the yard. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Of course this did not satisfy the five core demands. Right. These five core demands you have to understand are were the foundation Of men deciding that they would rather die than to continue living under the conditions that they were being subjected to. A third hunger strike was called because the second hunger strike was called off. When they told us, we're going to meet some of your demands. But those meetings was a beanie cap, a wall calendar, a handball. Superficial bullshit. And a pull-up bar on the yard that was just a concrete yard. So now you had a pull-up bar out there. That was it. It didn't meet not one of the core demands. No programs, no education, nah. no nutrition, none of them. None that. of them. Yeah. None of them.
1: So the third one was called?
3: Yeah, the third one was called in 2013, July. So that one began in July 8th. And that's the one that went on for a much longer, almost 60 days. Man!
4: 60 days. 60 days. And, and what is So it like not uh, before, we, before we even get into that, understand this. Uh, when that happened, that morning I was laying in my bunk. It was 5 o'clock in the morning. And a guy that I knew that lived below me on the tier bangs on the wall and yells up to me. And he says, hey, are you up? And I said, yeah, I'm just laying here. And he says, is your TV on? And I said, no. Nah. He says, turn your TV on, put it on Channel 7. So I get up, 5 o'clock in the morning, I turn my TV on, I put it on Channel 7. And right there on Channel 7 News, it said 30,000 California prisoners join hunger strike. Man! Wow. 30,000 individuals join in the hunger strike. So that's almost three times the second one. Prisoners throughout the state in every institution in California were on hunger strikes, even those that were in the general prison population. All right, all right. And what did the CDC do then? They panicked.
1: And? Pickles? Um, You're writing a book. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Pickles?
3: No, well, well, exactly that. They panicked, right? Because I don't think that, I think that that completely shocked them and surprised them. Um, and they did, I mean, really, I mean, it wasn't, uh, CDC didn't move on their own it was with the pressure of the Public Safety Committee and it was also with the pressure of the lawsuit that came in which is Ashka versus Brown right so part right. of the hunger strike efforts is a combination of of the hunger strikes right the involvement of the family members and then legislation
1: so the multiple prongs that J- gentleman Jack was talking about
3: exactly right so um, you're asking like where are we are at now yeah. um, and a lot of people were were released from the shoe right so though they ended up uh, agreeing that you know after those that were in the shoe, more than 10 years would automatically be released out of the shoe, right? And this comes out of partially the pressures of the settlement and the attention that the hunger strike has, garn- has garnered.
1: Gentlemen, Jack, was that the time that you got out of the shoe or were you in the shoe? I,
4: I was released uh, two years later uh, as a result of the hunger strikes. Uh, they just, like Pickle says, all these three things were taking place and they said, okay, we're going to let people out the shoe. But, of course, they had been... Uh, jamming that stick in the door for decades right? you know what I mean and, and they teased the dog and they spit on the dog and they kicked his food up into his tray and, and they did belittled you and they dehumanized you and they deprived you and now they were faced with the possibility that they were going to have to open that door without five of you standing there oh. and put you in handcuffs. And let you into the general prison population. The words out their mouth is they're gonna kill us. Right. You can't let them people out those cells. They're gonna kill us. So the question I used to ask is, why would you think that? Right. Why would I have a a All reason right. to kill you if you open this door? If you open mm-hmm. this door and mm-hmm. I don't have chains wrapped around me, giving me thirty-five more pounds to my body, why would I wanna hurt you? Mm. They know. Mm-hmm. Well.
1: So, so did they in those two years, right? So it's, there's, all right. So now there's some movement and they say, yeah, we're going to let people out. And then there's two years. Did they, did anybody try to trip you up, get you upset so that you would have another violation of some kind so you
4: couldn't get out? I was in a pod um, and I remember a particular event where uh, the guard, a a pod, a pod is a is a section in a block. A block has six pods, uh, A through E, and each pod contains eight cells, four above, four low. There's only one way to open those doors, and that's electronically from a control center that oversees all six pods. Mm. I was in a pod where there was uh, uh, a mixture of race and geographical locations, as I had told you. Two blacks, two whites, two northern, two southern. Every door in the pod was open at once. And the gunner was standing there with his gun ready to get off. And I remember people walked out on the tier and shook each other's hand. And the guard turned around and picked up the phone immediately before even closing the door and says, man, there's something wrong. (laughs) Right. It's not working like it's supposed to. They're not jumping on each other we opening, and they they started opening doors. Oh, it's an accident! We opened this door and, and opened that yeah. door at the same time, but there was nobody jumping on each other. They were mm-hmm. hoping for something to pop up, right? And when they did want somebody, what they would do is they would open the door of somebody that was on an en- enemy list with somebody else. Right. So in order to say, well, these incidents are still happening, you know, right? But, but they were all setups. But uh, for the majority. Uh, of, uh, of the period of time in which they st- reached the determination or were, were directed in that uh, uh, direction to reach the determination to release us from the shoe, uh, there were no incidents that resulted as, a re- uh, as uh, because somebody was of another race or somebody was of another geographical location in the free world. Man. And that's something.
1: That is something, man.
4: You have to remember the California Department of Corrections had been dealing with that stuff for decades. They had no answer to it. And they thought their answer was to build a security housing unit and torture those placed in it, and then build another security housing unit and put those people in the small corridor where they'll never talk to anybody else except their shadow on the wall. And they found humanity within each other.
2: Damn. Well, Amazing.
4: I,
1: I, where are we at today, That's Pickles? It. Tell us where we need to go, because I think Gentleman Jack
2: yeah. laid it all out right yes, there. Yes, you did. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah,
3: I mean, so what happened after, um, after the Ashker settlement is that um, though, like, they released about 99% of those that had been in the shoe for 10 or more years. Um, and the California solitary population dropped by 65%. Right. so they went from about 9800 to about 3400 um, in administrative segregation. So part of where we're at now is that a lot of a lot of the aspects of the 5 core demands have not actually been met. Right? The aspects that have improved have been because of the Ashker versus Brown or Ashker versus Governor of California settlement. Um, so one of the really big things in, um, in regards to what they were asking for was to uh, address the debriefing policy. And to modify the um, the active and active gang status. Right. And um I believe you guys have a whole episode talking about yeah. gang yeah, validation, yeah, yeah. We did right? So so yeah, that's where that's where a lot of the issues are happening right now. Because part of what also happened was that as many were being released from the shoe, their idea was that okay, when, when we're released and we go out to general population, then we'll be able to have access to programming, right? And if we have access to programming, then when we go up to the parole board, then maybe one day we'll have the opportunity to be able to be released, right? Because for some of those, they had already um, they had already more than like twice served their sentence, right? right. The the um so um. So they had high hopes of being able to parole. But what happened was when they go out to general population and they go out to the level four yards, they find that in some ways the conditions there are a lot more worse than what they were actually living in the shoe. Right. And the fact that oftentimes these yards are on lockdown and they don't have a lot of programming in these level four yards. Right. So their whole um uh, right now, part of that as well, too, is that although they have changed some things around validation and you can technically no longer put somebody in the shoe for validation. Um, it has to be on a behavior violation. Um, they still put people in administrative segregation. Right. So there's still arbitrary reasons why people are being placed in the in the in the hole. Right. Uh, and uh, in some ways, the hole is a lot worse than the shoe yeah, because they don't have access to um, Like sometimes they only have access to a Bible or things like that, right? So right
1: So where we're at today is that the CDC is still playing the shell game. Yeah, they're changing the labels and the reasons why they're uh, Putting people in some kind of isolation some isolation which may be worse than the shoe. Where can people go to learn more and or support? Abolishing these terrible CDC practices.
2: Yes
3: Uh, You can go to the Prisoner Hunger Strike Solidarity WordPress page that usually has all of the updates on the hunger strike. And it has an archive of all of the statements and all of the updates that were happening since 2011 to now. So if you want to learn more about this, you can go to that. Okay, so what's it called? It's the Prison Hunger Strike Solidarity WordPress. So just Prison prisonhungerstrikesolidarity.wordpress.com.
4: Great. And, and you could come and listen to the podcasts that are being developed by the Hard Luck Show. And, yeah. And get the story from those that experienced it and those that participated in changing uh, the outcomes of some of the lives of the men there at, through these uh Discussions, yes. gentlemen. Jack, when Indeed. are you running
1: for governor of California?
4: I tell you, it better happen soon. <laughs>
1: Seriously, I mean, you I'm listen to this guy you. talk.
2: Yeah, you man, that's beautiful. Great. Wonderful. Leadership.
4: Beautiful. I see leadership in your future, my friend. You. Yep. It was. Uh, oh. I was drinking a Red Bull before I came here. <laughs> well, that explains it.
5: Uh,
1: Mr. Marilla, producer. Producer, Mr. Marilla. California you got any families again uh, abolishing solitary uh, confinement. What else? Give a shout out. You got a
5: haircut, I see? Come on. Uh, Yeah, yeah. No, well, for me, um, you know, it was, um, I wasn't part of the hunger strike while I was in prison. I was already out. I was a student at UC Berkeley when I got involved in the third hunger strike. And um, for me, you know, it was important to be part of that, right? Because um, I always, you know, at one point in my life, I wanted to see the solidarity between people that had been incarcerated, had been pit against each other, Right. right? And to see that happen, right, for me was... One of the most beautiful experiences to um, be a part of, right? Right. But also, you know, um, a, as Pickle said, right? There's still issues that we need to address, right? And one of those that we want to definitely bring to the forefront is the fact that people are not being released, right? Um, lifers that are still labeled as gang member or their associates are not being released, even though they some of them have already done double, triple their sentence, right? And it's because of these labels um, that. Pro CDCR is not allowing them to be released, right? And we're using this as an opportunity to show the world, right, that people that have been in solitary confinement, labeled as a gang member as an associate such as myself, such as Gentleman Jack, we're now out here doing positive things. Right. Right? right. So transformation is possible. Right. Absolutely.
3: And I would say too, a really um, still active component of the hunger strike movement yeah, is absolutely. the agreement to end all hostilities, right? And trying to promote that uh, the message of the agreement to end all hostilities And the coming together of different races and uniting because they realized that for so many years, um, CDC had actually benefited from their racial division and their silence. Right. So for them, deciding to come together across races and work together and unite um, in order to address all of these policies and push for these changes.
1: Hopefully we can take that lesson outside the prison walls and end hostilities in a regular social sitting uh, setting that we're in. Right.
3: Yeah, and I think that that's part of their efforts, right? And part of them trying to break the narrative of CDC of them being the worst and the worst and them actually trying to take initiative um, and sending this message and saying, like, hey, we deserve better. And the only way that we can get better conditions for ourselves and our communities is by coming together and no longer um, getting into these divisions or inciting violence amongst ourselves. Right. Um, And
4: and so you know that, you know, since I've been out... uh I'm a taxpayer. I'm right. a voter, right. and I'm a, a contributor to the community and to a better society. So, and uh, soon to be governor. So you can't say, you <laughs> Make know, sure that tax money. You let is them out, prisons. and and they're going to be nothing but danger. Uh, I'm proof that that's not the case. That's right. Yeah. Big
2: lux. That's right. Where do we go? I just want to say thank you again, both of you, for coming in. Danny, thanks. Put together, great yep. job, team. like we do about this time adios amigos
0: hey guys it's sean and i'm here with pickles and we actually have a little bit of follow-up for the show now if you're listening to the whole episode there's some other notations that pickles had made after the show that we wanted to include and make sure that we cover all the ground so pickles why don't you tell us a little bit about what you were talking about after the show
3: Okay. Hey, what's up, guys? So yeah, as you all heard, Bobby Sands was a really instrumental uh, instrumental piece of this strike. And uh, the book about the Irish prisoner hunger strikes that was written by Dennis O'Hearn was, was uh, circulated around the shoe pod where a lot of the planning was happening. And part of why it was circulated was because uh, those that were planning this hunger strike wanted others to understand that in the Irish hunger strike, people actually died, right? So there was no happy ending for them. Many that participated were dead afterwards. So they wanted folks to understand the seriousness of this hunger strike. Nonetheless, you know, uh, there's various freedom fighters and revolutionaries that many of those participants drew inspiration from. And, you know, and this hunger strike went beyond Pelican Bay. It went to other uh, shoes across the state of California. There was, you know, participation in Corcoran and in Tehachapi and also in, in Calipatria where many were awaiting shoe transfer and ad sex cells for years. Right. And so, Although that was an instrumental book for, for conveying the seriousness of this movement, they also wanted it to be understood that this was, you know, this movement was to be viewed as its own unique historical event in California prison history. And so it should not be tied to or dedicated to one historical figure, right? Because it was from the inspiration of, of all of these various, uh, movements of resistance and, um, and, you know, their own, their own experiences being tortured by CDC, right? So it was not, you know, one particular historical figure, organization, or event, or it wasn't led by one particular revolutionary organization or the result of one sole leader or group. It was a collective effort, you know, where they came together after years of, you know, of, of, of being, you know, being, being tortured at the hands of CDC and realizing that, you know, they actually had a lot more in common than they had differences.
0: Uh, there's one more important thing that I wanted to touch on, but before we go there, can you go back? You say they have more in common. That really moves the conversation into the bit you were sort of mentioning about the importance of them coming together.
3: Um, yes. Yeah, so for them, that if they actually came together, if they actually came together across racial lines, you know, and and, um, and form you know form power as a collective, that they could. Um, they could actually transform the conditions inside to benefit prisoners, and this doesn't just mean benefit them as individuals. But they understood that, you know, if if they could get programming that would help them better themselves and their person, that that would actually benefit the public as a whole, right? So they have this whole concept of how um, how prisons, the way that they're structured, actually doesn't benefit society, right? And and the ways in which you know prison, the way that that is structured, is not actually about safety and security. So CDC would always use this narrative that it needed the shoe, that it need to hold them in these conditions of confinement to use these torture tactics for the, for the safety and security of the institution. And what they actually come to expose is that CDC doesn't care about the safety and security of people inside or the people outside, right? CDC is heavily invested in keeping races separated and in fostering violence amongst prisoners because that's the that those are the incidents that help them paint prisoners as the worst of the worst and use that rhetoric to get, be able to destroy pro- programming for them inside, but also to be able to expand the prison industrial complex, right? So when they came together and they realized that they had more similarities and they had differences, they actually realized that a lot of them come from similar neighborhoods. They come from working class backgrounds, right? And that a lot of them that are caught behind, you know, behind prison cells come from a lot of these working class communities that the prison industrial complex actually, you know, capitalizes off. Um, I remember hearing the interview by Alfred Sandaloban. He said, I've never met a millionaire who's on death row right and, and i think that that's very telling in terms of you know the how once they brought their minds together and their collective efforts together they were also able to offer a critique of what is the role of the prison system right and and you know how is the prison system structured and how it actually is not structured to benefit our communities but capitalizes off of their suffering and and garners their support by painting them as the worst of the worst right and so they decided instead to come together you know to try to bring people across races to create a better world, not just for themselves inside, but for all of those out here so that the next generation didn't have to be captured inside of shoe cells.
0: Okay. Um, One last thing that you were mentioning. Um, I know that uh, everyone was kind of laughing a bit about like stocking up and feeding on honey buns before the actual hunger strike just to put on weight. Um, But you had a really good point about that not being the reality for most people in different situations.
3: So. Um, I think it's really important to understand that the hunger strike experience was different for a lot of, uh, was different across facilities and depending on in the pod and, and the person, right? Because, you know, while some people were able to stock up and put on weight, that's not the reality for everyone. So there's people within CDC custody that are indigent, right? And they don't have money on their books to stock up on canteen and, and you know, and make sure that they're able to put on weight beforehand, right? They don't have anybody that on the outside that they're connected to or family that's taking care of them, so they don't have access to that. And it's also very different across the facility because like pelican bay is up north they have access to good water right but you're when you're getting into some of the older facilities that have you know old and you know rotten ass pipes like the the water that they're sustaining themselves on is not very healthy, right? So would you combine that as well too with the realities of Callipatria during the first hunger strike or, you know, in ASU that, that are the shoe overflow, like they were being denied liquids. So they weren't, they didn't even have access to electrolytes or, you know, Gatorades or vitamins to be able to sustain themselves on the first hunger strike, right? And so- There's thousands in AdSig too that didn't have access to canteen. So there are people that were on this hunger strike that were literally starving themselves, right? And so there's stories of guys that, you know, they share and they say, you know, that they could feel their stomach cramping after certain days and you could they could feel feel their stomach, like their body eating itself, right? Because after a few days, it doesn't matter how much you stocked up. Like when you're on day 10, your body starts to feed itself off of the body that you have that you have on your body, right? And so your organs start working overtime. And so there's stories of guys that share that, you know, any little movement that they, they felt, they could feel the heart palpitations off like going crazy on their chest because any little movement that they made, like their body was working overtime to be able to sustain them. So people really did starve and there's a lot of families out here that were suffering with them, you know, and their loved ones who who were going in there to visit their you know, their folks inside who were behind bars who were part of the hunger strike. You know, there's stories of families saying I went to go visit my 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 loved one on the 15th day and he had already lost 20 pounds and he doesn't want to stop because he says that he's going to go all the way, right? And so, you know, and and especially in the third hunger strike, when people were going on for 60 days, there was people going in there visiting on the 40th day, you know, like into the 40th days. And and their loved ones were not showing any sign that they were willing to stop, right? Because some of them, like Jack had shared, like some of them were ready to die that way. And they knew they were lifers. They knew that they were going to die in the shoe because they were going to be kept there indefinitely if things did not change, right? So they'd rather go out this way then go out at the hands of CDC. Right. And so many of them were also like there as, um, you know, they had been there a very long time and established, you know, um, medical conditions, uh, over time. And, and, you know, they, they experienced medical neglect from CDC and the same was happening throughout the hunger strike. Right. So there are many that passed out because they didn't have access to vitamins. They didn't have access to electrolytes and they were not eating. Right. And so, especially in the third hunger strike, you know, in uh, and Corcoran, uh, uh, the CDC going in and putting sandbags under under the uh, on the bottom of the cell. So there's no fishing. They went in and they took all of their canteen. Right. And this is a strike that lasted 60 days. Right. So it is very serious. Um and and there is a lot of people that have suffered. And it wasn't just the people inside that were suffering. It was their loved ones on the outside, too, that were hearing all of this, you know, and, and and not only hearing that, you know, their their loved ones were starving, but some of them were also hearing about how the shoe really was for the first time because their family had kept that a secret because they didn't want them to know their conditions of confinement so that their, you know, their moms and their sisters wouldn't have to suffer. But once this hunger strike blew up, all of that was exposed and now their families knew. Right. And so I got to see all of those, all of those mothers suffering and crying and tormenting themselves over this hunger strike.
0: Wow. Uh, it's amazing uh, that this movement did open our eyes a bit, And it really continues to, um, I want to thank you pickles for doing the show and especially for doing this follow-up um hopefully uh we can bring some more eyes and ears to the issue
3: okay thank you so much sean i really appreciate you thank you for doing that extra extra work
0: and thank you guys for listening to this extended segment see you on the next one adios from the hard luck show